So um, I'm a sucker for like the like top five, top ten lists that you can find out there. Like the most clickbait thing that you could probably find on the internet is like the thing that just sucks me in. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else with me? Like the top five, top ten? Okay. So here's like an example for you, all right? So as we were getting ready for the fall festival, I made a ask to you that we would only bring good candy and I'm like took some shots at different candy that some of you didn't care for, like Smarties. And uh, so afterwards, I got a link from Sarah Hawley where we got, she found various links of ranked Halloween candy, all right? And I didn't just look at the one that she sent me. I went to the BIS of all the top five, top ten lists of Halloween candy and just hijacked my day, right? And so um, as I love these things, I couldn't help but think as we're coming up to this passage that we're looking at tonight, the, the story of the flood, it has to be one of the like, top five, top ten events that's happened in human history, right? Like, I mean, try to make a short list of all the things that have happened in human history. The flood has to be up there, right? I mean, if you're making the short list, here's the only ones that I could think that could possibly trump it, all right? The incarnation crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, like number one, right? Like that has to be it. But then you have like the creation itself that God spoke this world into existence. That, that has to be the flood, right? Then that the fall of humans, of, of Adam and Eve in the garden, that probably also has to trump the flood. I probably would also argue that the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost would trump the flood, but Outside of that, what can you really put before it, right? I mean, it has to be top five, top ten of things that have happened in human history. And so as we look at this passage tonight, like, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to hold. It's a lot to carry. It's a lot for us to wrap our minds around. So I'm going to do my best on a Super Bowl Sunday to try to help us put this thing together, wrap our minds around this. And so if you really want to look at it, you can kind of break down the whole entire story into two different movements, right? So the first one is essentially God's judgment. The flood actually comes and does what God says it's going to do. And then secondly, you also see in the midst of this just enormous judgment on God's world, you also see God's salvation that takes place. So you get God's judgment in Genesis chapter 7. You get God's salvation in Genesis chapter 8. And so I just want to look at the story in these two different movements tonight. We'll break them down. I'm going to try to do my best to kind of work through the details of each of these movements rather quickly. And then we'll conclude with a couple of responses. Sound good? All right, so let's start with God's judgment, basically all of Genesis chapter 7, all right? So here's my best attempt to give you an overview of what happens here in Genesis chapter 7. I'm going to hit some significant verses, and we'll move forward. So the first one is Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Um, God gives this instruction to Noah and his family to board the ark. So here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. And so what Moses is basically doing here is he's retelling all of Genesis chapter 6. It's sort of like the, the bridge between the gap of Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. It's a retelling of Noah's faith and obedience that we looked at in depth last week. We can see this by the way this section, this first paragraph ends. 
Verse five, and Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. So there's sort of like this short synopsis. Noah, it's time. Go get on the boat. Then you see Genesis verse seven of chapter seven. You see, so Noah, his sons, his wife, and his son's wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. And so Noah and his family, they follow the command of God. They get onto the boat. This happens over a seven-day span. And so as I was looking at this this past week, someone related it to the ark is essentially a stadium, all right? So imagine all the work and the, the advancement of what they've tried to put into like the Super Bowl that's happening tonight, literally months, maybe a whole entire year that's gone into trying to get the stadium ready for this big game. Will you have the whole entire world that's getting onto a boat that's the size of a stadium and it happens in seven days? So seven days may sound like a lot, a lot of work that gets packed into those seven days, right? So all this happens, Noah boards the ark. He does all that God has commanded him to. Then you see in verses 11 and 12, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the skies were open, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So the flood comes. So look at what's happening here, all right? Genesis chapter 1, at creation, God separates the heavens from the waters. Now, the, the barrier that he's placed between the two is absolutely removed, right? Everything that God has put into place is coming undone, which is what we see ultimately happens in verses 17 through 24. Creation becomes undone before all of the world. And so here's what it all says, all right? Here, I'm just gonna read all of this because it gives us the details. Pay attention to the details that happen in this section. So verse 17, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth as well as all mankind, everything with breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Look. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark, and the water surged on the earth for 150 days. So look, we've taken this story, we've desensitized it, and essentially turned it into a kid's bedtime story. But you look at the details of what happens here, and you have to, it, you can't describe it in any other way than it's cataclysmic. I mean, God wages war on creation. That's what's happening here. Whenever it says the waters fell for 40 days and surged for another 150 days, I mean, just imagine that. 
water, the, the earth and its expanses open up to the word. The waters are surging forward. The heavens are pouring forth rain for 40 days after that has happened. Then that water surges and it's the, what the language that's being used here is that of like military terms. And so the water is literally the soldiers of God that are going forth, creating war against his creation, literally killing all that has life in it. And then ultimately, all of creation is destroyed. All creatures, the creation is completely covered by the expanses of the water. Every creature perishes. Mountains are covered by 20 feet of water to where the ark cannot surface because of what has taken place on the earth. The, literally the words, the breath of the spirit of life in verse 22 have come out of all of living creation. So in the creation account, you have God that takes man. He breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. And now here he's expelling it. Everything perishes after the waters, the soldiers of God go forth and destroy all of creation. Now, here's what, in the midst of all of this, here's what should stand out to us about what has taken place at the flood. It's that God is in control of it all. He's in control of all of this, all right? Here's two things that you see here. One, God has absolute power and freedom over his creation, doesn't he? All right, so if you look at this account, there's another account, the historic account that the biblical account has been compared to throughout human history. It's this account of Mesopotamia. And so in this flood account, you have many gods who are annoyed by the overpopulation of the earth and the noise that humanity makes from it. And their solution is that they decide to send a flood, and this flood gets out of hand. And in the midst of this flood getting out of hand, there's a select few heroes that build this boat. They see what the gods are up to. They build this boat. They build the ark. They get onto the ark, and then they shut themselves in. But that's not the way this happens with the God of the Bible, is it? The God of the Bible is one God, this God that comes and he brings judgment on all of his creation. He does not, it does not get out of his hand. In fact, we see that he is under the control of everything that's happening, even so much so that he's the one that shuts Noah up in the ark. He's the one that closes the door. He's in control over all of it. He has power and he has freedom over all of creation. And then secondly, we see that it's God's judgment of sin, which is death. Now remember, God is not hasty or unloving in his judgment of sin that happens here, right? We looked at this for a couple of weeks. We've said first that there's been plenty of time for humanity to repent since the very sin that happened in the garden over 7,000 years of human history that has happened since the time that God told Noah that he was going to flood the earth. 120 years have happened. There's been plenty of time for humanity to repent from their way of life, but they have chosen to go after a world that is void of God. And because of this, sin must be dealt with, right? We talked about how it's not the unlovingness of God because what would truly be unloving is that God would be indifferent to what is happening in the world. And so a God that is truly loving and truly holy, he cannot overlook sin. It has to be dealt with. And so through all of this, 
See that God is completely in control. We see that he speaks, this whole chapter speaks to the severity of our sin. The world, creation is undone. But praise be to God, it doesn't end here. We have chapter 8, which speaks to the intentionality of our salvation. Genesis 8 speaks to the intentionality of God pursuing people that don't deserve him and saving and following through with his promises that he's created. So God stops the flood in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, second part, B, whatever you want to call it, says this, God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. All right, so he, like imagine, think back to Genesis chapter 1. Within the very first few verses, you see that God speaks the world comes into existence as he's speaking. There's a, a, the spirit comes and hovers over God's creation. This word wind is also translated spirit. And so you get a recount of what happens at creation. God's spirit comes and hovers over the damage that has happened through the flood. And as this is happening, the flood subsides, the waters recede, the earth dries, and the ark is unpacked. All right. And so in the midst of all of this, There's a lot of symbolism that's taking place that all of God's people, as they are recounting the flood, would pick up on this symbolism, and the symbolism is all pointing to God's salvation. It's just that all of Genesis 8 is littered with it, all right? So I'm going to work through four of these instances. So the first symbol of God's salvation is faithfulness, all right? We see this in Verse 1, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. All right, so when we think about this word remembered, we do it in terms of mental recall. All right, so uh, maybe you're like me, you get text messages, you open up the text message, you read it, something captures your attention, you forget about the text message, and so you fail to respond, right? That's what we think of when it comes to like remembering. You finally remember that you got the text message and you shoot, I'm sorry, I read this, I got distracted, yada, yada, and you send the text message. That's not, what happ- that's not what's happening here, all right? When the Bible and the Hebrew talks about remembering, it's God acting upon a previous commitment. If you think back to Genesis chapter 6, I didn't hit on this because I was trying to save it for this week. Verse 18 of chapter 6 says this, but I will, this is God speaking to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wife. So in the midst of everything that's happening, creation becoming undone, Chapter 8, verse 1 hits, God remembered Noah, pointed back to this covenant. And so from the outset of chapter 8, it's saying God is faithful to his promises. God keeps his promises. Literally in the midst of all the world becoming undone, God remembers Noah. He remembers the covenant that was made to him, and he keeps his promise. Second symbolism that you see here is that of hope. You see this in verse 6. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. All right, now we'll just stop right there because there is significance throughout all of Scripture for the, the number of 40. All right, I have four up here, four zero. There you go. Uh, Justin Buzzard says this, 40 is a biblical stock word that has hope at its core. So you can literally look over the expanse of Scripture, and any time that the word 40 appears, there's always hope that's at the center of it, all right? Just two examples, right? So God meets Noah 
on Mount Sinai for 40 days. God's people have been removed from Egypt through the Exodus. There's question of whether God's going to go with them. Moses <clears throat> goes up to Mount Sinai, and he, God meets him there for 40 days. It's a reminder that God is present with his people. After that, God provided the promised land after 40 years of his people wandering the wilderness, showing that God actually will provide for his people. Hope at the middle and the core. In the midst of this, we see hope that God truly will deliver. Noah looks out the window. He sees over the expanse of creation. And what we see take, that moves forward is he sends out the birds. The birds so, show a symbol that there's hope for life after the flood. Third symbol is that of peace. We see it in verse 8. It says this. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. All right, so dove is a major symbol throughout all of Scripture. The dove is later a symbol of humility and peace. It's the animal that would be a sacrifice for sins for the poorest of the poor amongst God's people. And so what you see here is that there's a humility and there's also peace that takes place as the dove is sent out. It's a symbol that after the waters have surged the surface of the land, destroying anybody and everybody that it has encountered, he opens up, he sends out the dove, the dove comes back. It's a symbol that the waters have ceased and peace is now found on earth. And the fourth is new life. Verse 11, when the dove came to him at evening, there is a plucked olive leaf in its beak. Olive, olive trees, olive branches, olive oil, all have major significance within the life of God's people in the tabernacle or in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. There is a olive tree that is there. There is also uh, the anointing of the things that go into the Holy of Holies with olive oil. And so it's a symbol to God's people that there is genuine true life in the presence of God as well as that he is present with his people. And so even in death, we see here that God will produce life. All of this symbolism that's pointing to salvation. Now, can I just help us identify Jesus here? Like, so you see the symbolism that's happening here. All the symbolism of salvation in Genesis chapter 8 finds its uh, consummation in Jesus. All right? So God is faithful to Noah in the flood. He remembers him in the midst of everything that is happening on the face of the earth. And look, God is faithful to us. We see God's faithfulness in Jesus in his incarnation. Right? So what happens here is he remembers the promise that was given to humanity in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We see this in the culmination of Jesus as he, God, puts on human flesh and he comes into the world. The one that was promised has finally come. In Genesis chapter 8, you see after 40 days that Noah opens the window for hope 
for life after the flood and the life of Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness. We see that Jesus defeats Satan and his temptation and that he truly is the promised one that was to come and in him is the hope that we will have life eternal because he is perfect. He truly can be the sacrifice that all of us need. The dove in Genesis chapter eight returns to Noah on the boat as a symbol of peace that has happened on the earth after the flood. At Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends upon him. Literally, the heavens are opened wide. The spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And what we see in Jesus is that the flood, the judgment of God is actually put on the shoulders of Jesus for every single person that calls on the name of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, he's been victorious over sin. You have peace with God. Then in Genesis chapter 8, Noah receives the plucked olive leaf as an emblem of life that's occurring on the world. What happens at Christ's ascension is that God plucks the resurrected Jesus up off the Mount of Olives and seats him at the right hand of God, securing your salvation for all eternity. Ensuring that there's new life for you, that no one can actually pluck you out of God's hand, but God plucked the resurrected Jesus, the one that overcame death and has now secured new life for you. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing can that, that can rip it away from you. That's what happens here. You see Jesus here? All the symbolism of salvation in Genesis chapter 8 is just a looking forward to Jesus, but in Jesus we find his final realization. So look, what we need to do here is take heart. Look, in the midst of the great flood, God's great judgment on the world, we are pointed towards the coming of Jesus, this Jesus who God proves that he's faithful to save. Through Jesus, we see that everything that God had promised that he was going to do comes to fruition in his life in death. In Jesus, you see that your hope is secured. You see that there's nothing that can actually take me away from the life of God because Jesus has done everything that I could never do. Jesus has overcome. He's been tried. He's been tempted. He's done everything that I could never do. And because of that, we now know that there can be peace that is won because he's gone to the cross. The crucifixion has happened. It's real. Jesus was on the tree. He died in your place. The Romans chapter 5 says that we have peace with God because of the cross of Jesus. We see that we have new life that's ours forever because, look, the Holy Spirit is also assembled by the dove. That same Holy Spirit that comes, descends on Jesus at his baptism now lives in you. All because you've called on the name of Jesus. So look, Christian, take heart. Take heart for what Christ has done for you. Now look, two responses, all right? First one is this. We should plead for mercy, all right? This, this whole entire story serves as a warning for us, and it should elicit for us a plea for mercy. For those that have not called on the name of God, and then it's the continued cry for us that follow Jesus, all right? So it's not a plea for justice, but it's a plea for mercy. There's a story with Napoleon where evidence was found against a man that had plotted against his life on several occasions, and the man was given the sentence of death. For months, the man's daughter goes and pleads 
for his life. And finally, finally she's heard. She's brought into the presence of Napoleon. Knowing what she's pleading for, Napoleon replies, My girl is of no use to plead for your father, for I have the clearest evidence of his repeated crimes, and it is but justice that he should die. And here's what the daughter's response is. Sire, I do not ask for justice. I beg for mercy. It is upon the mercifulness of your heart and not upon the justice of this case that I rely. Every single one of us that look at this judgment and we see what God has done, it's a foreshadowing. Jesus in Matthew 24 actually points towards with this Noah story, the coming judgment that happens at his return. And in the midst of this, we all look at that coming judgment and we are all in the the father's place of this girl where we are deserving of God's justice, but we are pleading for God's mercy, which we find in the girl. It's one and perfect plea that we sing with before the throne that we look at the life of Jesus, that he's done all that we could never do for ourselves. Here's just a few of the lyrics. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. We put these words on your lips. We sing them aloud as a church. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid, bid, him, bid me thence depart. I'm secure in Christ all because of a plea for mercy. Everything he's done, nothing that you could ever do. The second thing, second response that should be elicited inside of us is that of urgency. As Jesus talks about the story of Noah, he talks about it in the terms of the shocking nature by which it approached humanity. So he says that people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the boat. And here's how he ends in verse 39. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. We look at this story, it should elicit urgency inside of us that this hope that we all share should be shared and explained to all that God has placed in our life. We should be the people with courage and conviction that the hope that we have found in Jesus is shared with those that God has placed us around. Now look, this is exactly just what we're wanting to be as a church. All right? We're the people that plead for the mercy of God. We're the ones that have called on the name of Jesus. Not only are we calling on the name of Jesus for salvation, we're calling on the name of Jesus to be present with us as we live in this world. And the promise of that hope is that Jesus has come and made his home inside of us. We're the people that are the God, like we are the the alternate community to this society where God dwells with his people. We call on the name of the Lord and we live under the hope that he goes with us. And as we go, we are the people that are committed to sharing the hope that we've found. That's what we want to be as a church, amen? Like we're the people that not only have we experienced new relationship with Jesus, we also are firm in our belief that when people, we go out and we share this hope of the gospel, that we know that God's going to go before us and he's going to save some. And so that's what we are, we are as a church. That's what we long to see God do inside of us, but outside of these walls as well. We want to see people that call on the name of Jesus, those that are being added to our number, people that are exiting eternal death and entering into eternal life because of the hope that we have in Christ. So you look at this flood account. It's God's judgment on the world 
The hope for us is we have been saved from this judgment because God's salvation is already pointing to this Jesus. And as we look at this, we find this hope and we also see this reality and what it looks like for us to live in this world. And we pray and we plead, Jesus, save us. Would you be here with us? And as we go out, God, go with us and save some. And then we look towards the time that he comes back again and that we know with certainty that we'll stand before him and live with him forever. That's what we claim. That's what we hope. That's what we believe. So look, this week, would you go out and live in it? Would you? Like, would you, li- would you live as if the judgment of God has actually been dealt with in your life? Would you do that? Would you go and live before a watching world in your home, before your family, in your workplace, with your neighbors, Wherever you go, you take the spirit of God with you. Would you live as if the judgment of God has actually been dealt with in your life? That you actually yearn and desire to walk with God in this world because he lives with you? Like, will you be the people that go with your God? Will you be the people that we know with certainty that when we share the good news of Jesus, that the book of Isaiah tells us that his word does not return void? Will you be the people that go and live what God has declared you to be, the salt and light of the world? Look, there should be a resounding yes. Look, Jesus has done everything for you. He's deserving of all of you. So will we live in it? Will we walk with him in it? And look, as we do it, he will show up. He will. He'll do it. Let's... let's, just pause and let's pray to that end and then we're going to practice communion which is the hope that we do have fellowship with God and as we do it we're going to take we're going to sit in it we're going to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us and we're going to be compelled to go out as a response amen let's pray